Alrighty, we are going to go ahead and get started here. Uh, I, I have a couple of sort of announcements to make as we get started. One, first is to just share my frustration with you about, Mac, about the Mac universe. So I did this on PowerPoint. Uh, long story short, on a few quotes and things, you're going to see like an E with an accent mark because Mac couldn't handle that font. And we've tried and failed to, to fix that. So if you'll just overlook that, then it won't be a, a distraction. Maybe if you see it coming, it doesn't, doesn't uh, you, you can still read the quotes and things like that. Um, second, uh, Ken has laid this out for most of you. you. You may have gotten a blank piece of paper in your hand. That is because, and this is why I'm starting now, we're going to probably need the full time to, do, to try to do justice to what is being laid out in this chapter. And this is also a chapter that's going to bring up just a trem- probably, if you're like me, a tremendous number of questions in your mind and important questions. And um, so you put those together, and that means we won't be able to do justice to questions and to discussion because of the lack of time. So the thinking is this. If you write those questions down and uh, get them in, I, I can take them at the end, that sort of thing. My thinking is next week w- there's much less material. We'll start off by, by bringing up some of those questions uh, and, and dealing with them. But then in particular, when we get to chapter 8 here, here in a few weeks, um, I'm gonna, I'll just go ahead and try to predict the future. Your questions are going to be questions about chapter 8. The two are completely connected to each other, and there's some things in between that we have to get to, and we'll talk about that next week. But um, some of those questions just simply cannot be answered without 45 minutes or so of discussion that really is just the chapter 8 lesson. So if you're willing to wait for a little bit on some of those, uh, they will be answered. However, that gives us a really good opportunity this morning uh, because it, it, this, I think this frees us up to not worry about those questions yet and to just sit under the weight of the passages that we're looking at and, and wrestle with the fact that they are in our scriptures that we all hold to be inerrant and God-breathed and to be reckoned with. Um, it, it, this can be a very useful opportunity for us, the fact that we don't have time to think about the questions at the same moment. So I hope you'll be willing to be patient with that. When I have a question, I want it to be answered right then, so it's frustrating for me, so I sympathize for that, but uh, hopefully this will, this will be useful. Uh, let me pray for us, and uh, we will get started. Heavenly Father, we are, we are grateful that we are here this morning. We recognize that this is because of your goodness to us. This is an act of mercy uh, that you have given to us, that we would be gathered with your people, we would be able to praise you together, to hear from the Bible together, um, to, to, to seek to think your thoughts after you, to have fellowship, to have accountability. And we know that the desire we have to be here is not from us. You have changed our hearts, and that's why we love your people and we love your word, and we thank you for that. God, the things that you have to, uh, set before us to wrestle with this morning are deep and, uh, and profound and challenging, and we ask for your grace uh, to, uh, to think clearly and, and, um, and biblically, protect us, Lord, uh, in just that way, keep our thoughts aligned with your word. Lord, help us to sense the authority that your, that your word carries over our lives. Everything that you say in your word is true. 
we wrestle with how to apply it, how to even understand parts of it. But it's such a grace that we sit amongst the people that all recognize that uh, while we might struggle to understand what it means, whatever it means, it is true. That is, that is, uh, that is such safe ground to start upon, and we thank you for that. So bless us in our time this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, chapter 4, God's control, its efficacy, and universality. Uh, this is where we are so far uh, in our walkthrough for the entire year. See, you'll see that the section we're on right now is going to go through February 10th, stop at chapter 7, ah, because chapter 8 is the one that I told you to wait for, so that's going to come at the end of March, and I just cringe at that. Uh, you can get the book and read it if you want to. It's great. Right now we're on uh, chapter 4 there, so this, we want to just kind of keep letting you see where we're heading. He is going to say at the beginning of next week's chapter of authority, um, he's basically going to say, thinking about God's control brings up inevitable, important questions that we will deal with in chapter 8, but we can't think about them properly unless we have thought about authority and presence first to finish the full framework, then come to those questions. So that's why he's forcing us very rudely to wait on those things. So that's, that's where we are right now. Uh, Seth brought up last week this notion of the covenantal triad. Do you remember that? There are, uh, uh, he, he, this is a fancy way to, to say when we call God the Lord, we are speaking in terms of three specific things. We're talking about control, we're talking about authority, and we're talking about presence. put these three realities and the way that the Bible describes his his control, authority, and presence, put them together, and you have a picture of what we mean when we say that God is the Lord of all creation. Uh, The Lord of his people, but the Lord of all creation. This morning we're focusing on uh, the first of those, the idea of control. Um, It it was helpful to me to to read a distinction that he makes. I've, I've thought of points... What exactly is the difference when we talk about control versus authority? What are we distinguishing between? And basically, control is, is speaking about the power of God to do what he wants to do. Authority is talking about the right he has to do that. And those are not the same thing. A bully has control but does not have authority, right? And so there's, he's out of bounds. So God has both of those things. He has the power to do what he wants to do, but he also has the right to do what he wants to do. So that's the difference between this week and next week. Um, As as Seth was introducing the idea last week to us, we talked about God as I am, uh, God as Yahweh, and uh, and what what that means. We saw that as Yahweh, as as a God who bears that name, uh, he is the king. He is the ruler of all of his creation. Um, and so today we begin to look specifically at this idea of the power he has to live that out, to exercise that. And we, we could look at control, at God's control, in one of two ways. Uh, we could take the first way. We could muse about it. We could speculate and kind of put our brains together. We could put the chairs in a circle and make it a discussion and share what you, what you think, uh, what your experience has been, what it's like for you when you have control over others, so how that's kind of like God. And we could uh, all do that together and come away uh, with knowing each other a little bit better uh, and then make our own decisions 
about how God controls? Is that the way that Christians think and make decisions about reality? Or we could do this a second way. We could work through the scriptures and start with a position of whatever God says about himself is the truth. So how does God's word present the idea of his control? So we're going to do the second of those two things. We're not going to do the first. Um, He's going to say at the end of this chapter, I do not apologize for including a large number of scripture passages in this chapter. Uh, Those scripture passages are why last week's chapter was, I think, 12 pages, and this week's chapter was 38 pages. It's not because there's so much more of an argument. It's because he's, he's concerned with us feeling the weight of what the Bible says about God's control. Uh, it's, a, it's very important that we, that we get that. And so he does not apologize for the large number of Scripture passages, and I, I won't either, although we're going to be looking at a lot of these. Um, some of these passages are going to describe God's control in the, you might say, in the abstract. It's going to just talk about his control. And there are other passages that are going to relay actual accounts of how God's control has shown up in the course of history, what it's looked like. Uh, we'll see it from both of those places. And, and Frame takes all of these passages, and very helpfully, for me at least, he organizes them into two groups. Uh, the, the, one group talking about the strength of his control, how strong is his hand, and the other group talking about the extent of his control. So I've thought about it in that kind of an analogy. One, the first group talking about how strong his grip is, and the second group of passages talking about how far does his reach extend? Uh, how far does he choose to extend his reach when it comes to his control? So we're going to look through these passages. First, the strength concept, and second, the extent concept. I'll turn that off whenever I cough here. Um, uh, now, I, I was not here for Ken's message the first week. <clears throat> I listened to it afterward, and I heard him make a, uh, there was this sound on the audio. Do you remember that? He was describing um, how, as he was reading through this, it has smacked him across the face. I don't, I haven't asked him, but I think that he was probably talking about this chapter principally when he was thinking about the experience of that, being, being confronted with something in a way and to a degree that he hadn't before. Um, this, is, this is powerful. And it's, it's common for us that, that this can produce struggle. There's a lot of times, I think, when we, we, we have something that we have accepted as true, uh, but as we look deeper into the realities of that, we can be surprised at what we see, and in a way that makes us wrestle internally. Uh, to give you a silly example, I felt that the first time I learned what a hot dog is made of. I had been firmly committed to the goodness of the hot dog already. But as I watched on TV what goes into making a hot dog, it caused a new kind of wrestling for me. Wait, am I still? I mean, this is a new perspective. Am I still okay with, is this still a good thing? And I came out good on the other side. I'm still committed to the hot dog. But I had some deeper realities that were always there, but I hadn't, I hadn't thought about them yet. Um, we experience this when we go to the doctor. The doctor says, Okay, look, we need to get your blood sugar down to here and your blood pressure down to here. And you respect the doctor and you say, yes, doctor, that's a good plan. I, I, am, I am with you. And he says, okay, then this is what it's going to look like for your lifestyle. 
and this is what it's going to look like for your diet, and you say, okay, I'm not sure if I'm still okay with that plan, because I hadn't thought about it from that perspective before. I could see the rightness, but this is a new way to look at it. Um, last example, roller coaster. You've heard about this awesome roller coaster, and you're thrilled. Your friend has convinced you that this is a thing you need to experience in your life before you die. So you go, you get in line, you're super excited, and you get on it, and you get to the top of the first view, and you say to yourself, okay, I thought this was awesome, but I hadn't considered it from this perspective yet. There was some missing information, right? Uh, this, is, this is something that happens to us, because often we, we can even rightly perceive something as good and right and approve of it but in, and be right, but we can hold that in a way that hasn't yet thought through the underlying realities and implications and results. So we worship a God who exercises his control over his creation. We celebrate that, and we are right to do so. This is a chapter that lays out the underlying realities and implications and results. But the wonderful thing is it does that simply by putting God's word in front of us over and over and over and over again so that we know as we struggle and wrestle, we can feel safe about the, about the struggle, about how, what does this mean? This is producing questions. That makes me feel uncomfortable. But I can do that in a safe way because I, the questions are coming from Scripture. And the answers will be coming from Scripture as well. So I hope that's enough of a, uh, of a preparation. Uh, let's go ahead and begin. God's control. First, first set of passages, first question to ask, how strong, according to Scripture, how strong is the strength of his control? How strong is the power of his control? And Frame is going to answer that question by using the word efficacious. Oh, here's the second question. I've already said that. Here we go. Efficacious. And he says, to say that God's controlling power is efficacious is simply to say that it always accomplishes its purpose. God's control is strong. How strong? Everything he purposes to do, he is strong enough to do. That's what he means when he says efficacious. Um, he, he, at several places, qualifies and says that doesn't mean creatures cannot oppose him. Creatures do oppose him. But this means creatures can never succeed in their opposition to a God this strong. Opposition is never able to succeed. Um, here's what I'm calling the frame what am I calling it here? Large frame quote number one. I think I have four of these. I just couldn't not put them on here because they're really helpful and important, but they're big. There's the first accented E I warned you about. So I'm gonna, I'll read this for you. Hopefully you can see it. Frame says, for his own reasons, he has, this is speaking of God, God has chosen to delay the fulfillment of his intentions for the end of history and to bring about those intentions through a complicated historical sequence of events. In that sequence, his purposes appear sometimes to suffer defeat, sometimes to achieve victory. But as we shall see later in our discussion of the problem of evil, each apparent defeat actually makes his eventual victory all the more glorious. The cross of Jesus is, of course, the chief example of this principle. So I'm, I'm going to paraphrase the definition of efficacious and simply say this. Nothing is too hard for God. This is not a struggle for us. The questions are not coming up yet for us, right? And nothing is too hard for God. Nothing is strong enough to wrench itself out of his grip. 
Um, so let's start to see some of the statements that the Bible makes concerning the strength of God's strength. Jeremiah 32, 27. Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? This is God asking the question. And the answer is pretty clearly no. Um, he says of Assyria in Isaiah 14, starting in verse 27. Surely as I have planned, so it will be. And as I have purposed, so it will stand, that I will break the Assyrian. This is the purpose that is purposed concerning the whole earth, and this is the hand that is stretched out over all the nations. For the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? He is questioning, he's challenging in these things. Isaiah 43, 13, also henceforth I am he. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work and who can turn it back? He speaks of his word. This is going to kind of foreshadow John 1 when the, the word is the creative agent of God and we see the word coming and taking on flesh in the person of Jesus. Um, Isaiah 55.11 says, As the rain waters the earth, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty. This is a statement of fact. This is God making a guarantee. Uh, But it shall accomplish that which I purpose. It uh, shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Daniel 4.35, All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, Not saying that he doesn't care for them, but saying who are they compared to his strength. Uh, As he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? No one can stop his power and no one can question his power. Psalm 115.3 put very simply, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Now, just think about all of these. I couldn't fit them all on one page. But take these statements of God concerning himself together and ask the question, what does the Bible paint for us in terms of a picture of the, uh, the strength of his power? Does he leave any room to question whether his strength is, in fact, efficacious? His control over his creation is efficacious. When you think of this subject of God having complete control over his creation, I'm going to fish here for one specific answer, all right? See who I can catch. Um, is there any particular imagery that comes to mind from the Bible? Any picture, word picture the Bible gives to describe God having control over what he is making and doing? What's that? Okay, what's the picture in Exodus? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. How about any, any imagery out of the book of Romans? Potter in the clay, right? Potter in the clay. We think of Romans 9, who are you, man, O oh man, who speaks back to God? Does the pot say to the molder, why did you make me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay? Um, I was actually, I, I didn't know this, that the Bible uses that same language in that same way uh, in Isaiah 29, Isaiah 45, Isaiah 64, Jeremiah 18, to make the same point about God's right as a potter has a right over the clay and has authoritative control over the clay. 
He chose that example. And think of the, the, the power that a, um, that a potter has over the clay. He's bought that clay. Uh, it belongs to him. He can do literally whatever he wants with it, and it has nothing to say to him. Um, so, and we'll talk about that right next week when it comes to authority. That's really what we're speaking about there is the authority that he has. Um, but I think that that picture tells us even more than just that of authority. I think it tells us about control as well. Because we don't imagine God, I don't imagine God, sitting down at a potter's stool with that clay that he has complete authority over and going, oops, ah, ah, let, me, let me try it again. Um, I, that's not the picture that I have. Uh, if, I'm the, if I'm the potter, I would have control over the clay in that other sense of authority, but I wouldn't have control over it in the sense of the ability to assert my will over it because I'm not a, I have no training. Um, God has no lack of training. He has no lack of knowledge to accomplish his desires, his will. Um, that weakness is not found in God. So God does have the absolute ability to assert his will over his creation. So I think that both of those things are seen in the picture of the potter and the clay. Um, not just that he has the right, but that his purposes prevail. Now again, does this mean that God's creatures cannot mount any resistance against him? Uh, Frame says, as we mentioned earlier, sinners do resist God's purposes. Indeed, that is a significant theme in Scripture. And then he lists out a host of passages that speak to this recurring theme of, of sinful creation resisting his purposes. But the point of the doctrine is that their resistance does not succeed against the Lord. Um, okay. And so the principle that we have here is, is simply this. God never intends to accomplish something and then fails to do so. This would be where, where, where we have brought ourselves so far. I'll say that again. God never intends to accomplish something and then fails to do so. Uh, this would be a place where I would stop and ask for some questions and get a sense of how you're reacting to this. I'm not going to do that because we're out of time. Feel free to write things down. Um, but I still suspect that, um, that even now, for, for most of us, we're still nodding our heads. We, this is how we have always thought about or long thought about God. God is, uh, is not a God who fails in what he attend, intends. So that's why he can promise us. Paul can promise that, and feel certain that, that which the good work that God began in a person, he will bring to completion. This is a certainty because God never fails in his intentions. We rejoice to worship a God that, according to Isaiah 46, 10, accomplishes all his holy will. Right? That's what we have said so far. What we're going to do now, though, is we're going to keep going on this track. You remember the roller coaster? We're going to keep going up and seeing the sight of the implication of what, what this is uh, what this means to God's creation. Uh, and this is a place we're often happy to stop, but we're not going to stop here because the Bible gives us so much more information about God's control. And so we're going to move now into the second set of verses. The first was uh, to demonstrate that God's control is efficaciously strong. It always accomplishes what it intends. The second is going to be speaking about the extent of God's control as he enacts it. And the, way, the word that Frame uses to, to uh, 
summarize these as he said, he uses the word universal. Uh, he says, I shall try to show that God exercises that kind, such efficacious control over everything that happens in the world. This is the beginning statement here of where we are. And the way he's going to do this is he's going to bring us through six realms. I'm just, that's not his word, I don't think he uses. Six realms, starting with the more general and getting to the more specific. So let's start by looking at what the Bible says when it speaks of God's control over the natural world. And now, here we're not focusing on the strength. We're focusing on um, the extent to which he chooses to exercise that control. Right? So let's, let's just start to look through a few of these. First is Psalm 135, verses 6 and 7. And we're just taking note of the language that the, that the Holy Spirit uses as he uh, tries to convey these things to us in human language. We've already seen that, right? Now let's get some context. The Lord does whatever pleases him in the heavens and on earth in the seas and all their depths. He makes clouds rise from the ends of the earth. He sends lightning with the rain and brings out the wind from his storehouses. A similar uh, topic in Psalm 147. He sends his command to the earth. His word runs swiftly. He spreads the snow like wool and scatters the frost like ashes. He hurls down his hail like pebbles. Who can withstand his icy blast? He sends his word and melts them. He stirs up his breezes and the waters flow. And Frame says of this, if you can see it down there, these are things that God does because they please him. He does not merely allow them to happen. Rather, he makes them happen. Now, I read that quote of his, and I, I said to myself, okay, that's it right there. Th- th- this is where the sticking point is in our thinking, I think, oftentimes. When we think about God's control in these things, what's the right way to think about it? Does God do these things, or does he allow them to happen? There's, that's, it's not the same thing. Does he do them, or does he, does he allow them to happen? And there's some thoughts that we have to process as we're looking at the language of these passages. And we'll see more here in a moment as well. But first, we we need to admit, and we'll just use these two passages as an example, that the language is active. If we're just looking at the language itself, the wording supports the idea that God is doing here and not uh, permitting in some sort of a passive way. So you have... Um, God doing, making the clouds, sending lightning, bringing out winds, those sorts of things. These are very active verbs going on here. But there's something even deeper that we have to think about when we're struggling with this question. Does God do this, or does he, does he allow it to happen? There, there is a real worldview clash between those two ideas. That if we're not thinking about it, we won't even notice it. But it's there, and it's, it is very important. Um, If we think of the notion of God permitting natural events to happen, what this is suggesting then is that God has set these things up, the weather cycle, gravity. He has set these things up, and now he has let them uh, run on their own in a way that is separate from him. And so if uh, the lightning is going to do what it does, but if he doesn't want the lightning to strike me as I walk to my car, he's got to reach in there, and he's got to intervene 
because it's going to do what it's going to do unless he steps in, right? Otherwise, he just passively lets it go and it does what it's going to do. First of all, does that sound right to you? Does that sound like um, the way that the Bible describes God's relationship to his creation? That he has to step in and respond? Is he reactionary in his control? Does that mesh with what Psalm 135 says about the lightning? When it claims that he sends the lightning. What we have to understand is that 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 picture that I've just described of God making, there's a word for that. It's called deism. It is a whole thing. Uh, You study it in your philosophy classes. It's a separate competing worldview from the biblical Christian worldview. It is an entirely different way to think about God's relationship. Now, deists typically say he did that and then he packed his bags. And so we we get no help from him. But this is the same concept of him and the way he relates to his creation. This is not orthodox biblical belief. And it doesn't square with the way he portrays himself in Scripture. We see these things. We find that not only do the events of nature submit to his governance directly, but even apparently random events are attributed to the control of God. So you have uh, Proverbs 16, 33. And this is the kind of passage I just have to remind myself sometimes. This actually means something. This isn't just like some sweet statement about God's control in a general way that it wasn't thought through before they wrote it. A teenager didn't write this in an emotive kind of, uh, you know, where they later regret that they, and they don't want anyone to say it. This is God's word. And he says, the lot is cast in the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. That means something. It's making a statement of fact about the nature of, of God's, and this is speaking specifically about control, isn't it? Its decision is from the Lord. Now the questions are starting to come up. Wait, wait a minute. Are you? But what? It's a whole change. It's coming. Let's keep looking, though, and, and letting ourselves sit under the, the claims of Scripture in these things. Um, oh, hang on. Okay, yeah, so the next one I didn't put up there because it's big. But do you remember the story in 1 Kings 22? King Ahab, end of his life, he's going to go out into battle and he's, he's afraid because uh, he knows he's under judgment. So he has a great idea. I'm going to dress up in a normal, uh, a normal soldier's outfit so they won't know who to target and I'll just blend in with the army. You remember that? Uh, so he does that. And it fools them. They, they, another guy dresses up as a king, and they go after him, and then they realize it's not Ahab, and so they have to turn back. And then it says, and changes the, then a certain man. Yeah. My wife is going to help me out here with some cough drops. It says, uh, a certain man uh, drew his bow at random. And so you have a picture of an impatient, I don't know, maybe an impatient uh, bowsman board or something, and he just goes, pew, and shoots. And uh, the arrow flies. Thank you. And it hits Ahab. It doesn't just hit Ahab. It hits him right at the chink between two pieces of armor so that it pierces through and it kills him. You remember that story? Now, at times in the past for me, and I look back now and I think, how was I okay with this? I was comfortable just going, wow, that's, that's cool. 
God's big, and moving on. But think about what that means. There is, there is no way we read that story and are supposed to imagine from it that he shot the arrow up and God went down and it was a good aim and went and, and flicked it over. That is not the picture. This man's pull of the bow was under God's control. The strength in his arm at that moment was under God's control. The flow of the wind was under God's control. The position that Ahab was standing in at the exact moment was under God's control. So that a random guy can shoot a random arrow and it can kill the king of Israel when he's trying to hide. There is so much implication to the reality of that story. When we're talking about how far does God's arm reach? What is the extent of his control? So, um, is, is God's control efficacious as he reaches this way? Where, where are the stories like this? Where are the stories where someone shoots a random arrow and it travels half a mile and hits the guy right beside the guy that was meant to die? And we read those stories and go, wow, that was so close. Man, how could he have gotten that close? Or it hits Ahab, but it bounces off his armor. And he learns a lesson about the, the, the strength of God and he's scared but it didn't quite do what God had intended. Are those stories in Scripture? They are are not there. The stories that we find as God puts himself on display are of remarkable detail in terms of his control, and God always winning, every time. Every time. You take those two things together, and you have these pictures of God's control as efficacious, but in a way that is, in fact, universal. So we would say... Uh, as we think about these passages, that God's efficacious control rules over the natural world. Wind patterns. Uh, I mean, extending beyond. Now, uh, let's continue to clink, clink, clink up the roller coaster, and let's get even more uh, narrow or more specific to our experience. Uh, Frame is going to say, oh, is this big quote number two? Yeah. Here comes large frame quote number two. Just, just, you don't even have to read it. If, just listen and think about this. Nor could we exist without a vast accumulation of apparently random events. He's still talking about the control over random, random events. We all owe our existence to the combination of one sperm and one egg out of a vast number of possible combinations. And to e- equally improbable combinations that produced each of our parents and our ancestors back to Adam. And consider how many natural events enacted, uh, enabled each of our ancestors to survive, to maturity, and reproduce. All of these things, plus the improbable events of our own life experience, have made us who we are. So if God controls all the events of nature, then certainly he also controls the course of our own life. So he's using that to, to speak to the natural uh, world and to transition it to the flow of human history. Um, There are places in Scripture that speak to God's relationship to that flow of human history, of which our lives are a part. Um, And let's look at these. The first is Acts 17.26. Paul says, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. Now listen to this description. Having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. So he's speaking of nations here. He's speaking of the rise and fall of, uh, of dynasties. And, these, and he says God has determined the times. 
and he has um, determined the boundaries of their habitations. God determined how long the Roman Empire would reign. God has determined how long the United States will exist as a nation. It has been determined in the mind of God already in a way that is inescapable. Psalm 33, verse 10, the Lord foils, what does this mean? The Lord foils the plans of the nations. He thwarts the purposes of the peoples. But the plans of the Lord stand firm forever. The purposes of his heart throughout all generations. So we talked several weeks ago, why I, I was preaching from Psalm 127. Right? Unless the Lord builds the house, the builder labors in vain. Whose plans are the efficacious ones in Psalm 33? God controls human history. Daniel 4, verses 34 and 35, God's dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. We've heard that phrase before. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? So we... We recognize these as inspired words from God conveying truth to us about the nature of his, his interaction with his creation. Um, and we, I would suggest, frame suggests, the only conclusion that can be drawn is that God's control extends to the realm of the flow of human history. He guides it. It obeys him. It follows his will. But even this, I think, can be impersonal enough for us to not feel tremendously anxious. We've already said that God controls my genetic code, and we have a sense that that makes a difference to our day-to-day life. Um, we've seen that God does as he pleases with the peoples of the earth. But we're going to continue to go uh, more and more personal here. And just remember what we've said about methodology. If we're asking this question about God's control and answering it by searching the scriptures then we have to search out the extent of what the Bible says about this. Much like the Bereans were commended that when they heard Paul's message, the first thing they did was went and searched the scriptures to see if this was, uh, if, if this was confirmed in them. So the next realm, we've gotten um, uh, the natural world, the flow of human history. Realm number three is individual human lives. What does the Bible say about God's control over our individual Human lives. No. Um, this one didn't make it up there because it's not big enough. But he, Frame says, God controls the history of nations and of human salvation, but these in turn govern to a large extent the events of our daily lives. Is that true? Is what God's chosen to do with the United States of America, does that have a large impact on my daily life experience? Yeah. Conversely, if God does not control a vast number of individual human lives, it's hard to imagine how he would be able to control the great developments of history. He's simply saying the two things. The realm number two and realm number three are pieces of, this is just a piece of, of the other. Um, in fact, scripture teaches explicitly, this is still framed, that God controls the course of our individual lives. So let's, let's listen to these. Jeremiah 1.4, this is God speaking of Jeremiah. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. 
And Frame asked the question, is, this just, is he just talking about making a, an exception with Jeremiah? Is Jeremiah an exception to the general rule because he is God's prophet? So here's him kind of musing, just, just thinking about implications. If God knew Jeremiah before his conception, then he must have arranged for each of Jeremiah's ancestors to be born, and then Jeremiah himself. So God is in control of all the accidents of history to create the, and the accidents is supposed to be in quotation marks, if it wasn't for the Mac back there, to create the precise person he seeks to employ as his prophet. Here's his point. God's foreknowledge of one individual implies comprehensive control over the entire human family. If this is true of Jeremiah, it can't be just true of Jeremiah, because it required the same thing about other people for God to be able to say it about Jeremiah, namely his parents. Uh, 1 Samuel 2, 6 and 7, the Lord brings death and makes alive. Is that relevant to our individual daily lives? He brings down to the grave and raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. Psalm 139, 15 and 16, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Ordained. Is there any element of control in that, in that verb? All of my days were ordained before one of them came to be. I find that it's helpful to start with something that I clearly understand sometimes and then think about implications of that. Um, and this is, this is uh, so in that kind of sense, this is a helpful sort of stepping stone to me. Has God determined the day and occasion of my death? Does God know when I'm going to die? And did that happen outside of his control, or did he ordain it? I can easily say, God knows when I'm going to die. That is according to his plan. Right? I cannot be, he can't have great plans for me in my 70s, and then someone cut me down in my 50s. And God do this. God never does this, because he doesn't have fingers. But also because this is not the way, his plans are not thwarted. So I know that God has determined the day of my death. Now, rarely, sometimes people can die in a way that seems disconnected from the rest of their life. So I could walk out to my car and have a plane engine fall on me and crush me. And that wasn't really related to the rest of my life. It was a little bit because I was in that place at that moment. There's a number of things that contributed to that, right? Um, But usually, our death comes in ways that are tied to some of the most detailed elements of our lives. What we have been eating for the last 40 years. How much we sleep. Uh, how we live. Our genetic dispositions. Right? Do you see that if God has determined your death, his control must extend into the deepest reaches of your individual life? This is why it's proper for Paul to say in 1 Corinthians 4.7 uh, to speak of everything we have as things that we have received from God. Not just possessions, but abilities, opportunities, experiences. He says, what, uh, who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you then received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Okay, so efficacious control extended over individual human lives by God. We are actually still doing pretty good on time. This is great. Um, Okay, now, we've already seen some of this, but this is the kind of thing 
that I will celebrate uh, the other realities and then just not think about, well, what does that mean? God exercises, con- he, he, he controls, is, are we saying that he controls my decisions? Are we getting into robot language right now? Hyper-Calvinism sorts of crazy things? What, what are we actually saying about God controlling? Um, okay. Oh, I didn't put it up there. Uh, Frame says, uh, we must now approach a more controversial area. Yeah. That of human decisions. Does God bring about our decisions? Some of them? Any of them? In a later chapter, chapter 8, I shall discuss the nature of human responsibility. Listen to this. I shall discuss the nature of human responsibility and freedom, which are genuine and important. This is, this will, this is not a denial of, um, of human responsibility and freedom. He says they are genuine and important. But here, we must face the fact that our decisions are not independent of God. And therefore, our definition of freedom must somehow be consistent with God's sovereignty over the human will. So let's go back again and hear the language of Scripture here. We'll start in Genesis 45. This is a pretty well-known story with Joseph. Joseph is speaking to his brothers. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these last two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. So much we could say about each of these, and we will. These will come back up. And we'll continue talking about them. But let's just hear the language of a few. Isaiah 44, 28. God says of Cyrus, this is a prophetic declaration. God says, um, he is my shepherd. Cyrus is the king of Persia. He is my shepherd and he shall fulfill all my purpose. Now God says that and Cyrus isn't born yet. It's going to be 150 years before Cyrus becomes king of anything. Um, And in Isaiah 45, 4 God tells us further there that Cyrus will not know God. Doesn't know him. Not born yet. God declares, he is going to be my shepherd. He will p- fulfill all my purposes. Are our decisions a part of our purposes? Is there any relationship there? Or are those just completely disconnected realities? Do I purpose something without making decisions? If God declares, he will do what I want him to do. He will fulfill my purposes. That's going to involve decisions being made on Cyrus's part. And we will see none of this in a way that, that in any way removes responsibility from Cyrus. But the point is clear. His choices are not somehow un, out from underneath the controlling sovereign power of God. Those decisions are never made apart from God's sovereign control. Um, Acts 4.27 and 28, for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So Frame's conclusion of these, he says, we should not be prejudiced by the unbiblical but popular notion 
that God never foreordains our free decisions. And I appreciate the way he put that. Sometimes I think, as I've seen people go down this path and get super excited and feel like they should take out the word free. We don't make free decisions. That's not true. We do make free decisions. But we don't make free decisions that exist under, out from underneath the sovereignty of God. If that conflicts, the problem is with our definition of creaturely freedom. How can a creature exercise freedom? All that's still coming. Oh, and I wish it were. Wish we had another hour. We could just go to it. But he says we need to know about authority and presence first to do it justice. So we'll trust him. Um, here's big frame quote number three. Uh, I just, I'm sorry. When I see it up there, I feel really bad. It didn't look like that big on my screen. But I really, uh, this is helpful to me, and I thought it would be helpful to you. Um, Furthermore, we have seen that God ordains the events of nature and the events of our daily life. How can such pervasive divine involvement in our life not profoundly influence our decisions? It is God who made us inside and out. To make us who we are, he must control our heredity. So he has given us the parents we have and their parents and their parents. And to give us our parents, God had to control many of their free decisions, such as the free decision of Jeremiah's parents to marry. He had declared himself to know Jeremiah before he was born. Could his parents have decided to call it quits before they got married? How did... Moreover, we have seen that God has placed us in our environment in the situations that require us to make decisions. He decides how long we shall live and who brings about our successes and failures, even though such events usually depend on our free decisions in addition to outside factors. Now, this in particular, this bottom paragraph, negatively, God's purposes exclude many free decisions that would otherwise be possible. Since God had planned to bring Joseph to Egypt, his brothers were, in an important sense, not free to kill him, although at one point they planned to do so. Nor could Goliath have killed David. Nor could Jeremiah have died in the womb. Nor could the Roman soldiers have have broken Jesus' legs when he hung on the cross, for God's prophets had declared otherwise. Here's a couple more. Daniel 1.9. Again, we're thinking implications here. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. Ezra 6.22. And they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy, For the Lord had made them joyful. This is speaking of him giving joy to Israel. But look at the next statement. And had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them, so that he aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. God controlled the emotions of the chief of the eunuchs, which produces passion and favor toward Daniel that hadn't been there before. God controlled the opinions of the king of Assyria, making them favorable and not unfavorable. This is the word of the Lord, thanks be to God. We have to, uh, this immediately becomes for us truth that uh, that is a part of what must be reckoned with and thought through as I try to imagine how do, how do these things work. It brings up important, as he's going to say, questions, lots of questions. But none of that takes these out of the scriptures. None of it takes away our responsibility to reckon with them, to struggle with them.
All right, so realm number five. You may be thinking this already. Well, some of my decisions are sinful. So what are we saying here? He says, the ne- this section raises even more serious difficulties than the last. Okay. So the question is, if God exercises control over human decisions, are sinful decisions excluded from that control? Well, again, let's, just, let's continue looking to the Bible and see what it says. Um, starting with Psalm 105. Verse 24, we'll look at, uh, I think, four or five passages here in this set. Psalm 105, verse 24. The Lord made his people very fruitful. He made them too numerous for their foes, whose hearts he turned to hate his people, to conspire against his servants. Is it good and righteous to hate the people of God? He turned their hearts to hate his people. 1 Kings 22 This is right before that story with Ahab getting killed. And the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth-Gilead? And one said one thing and another said another. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord, saying, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, By what means? And he said, I will go out and will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And he said, You are to entice him, and you shall succeed. Go out and do so. Now, therefore, behold, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these your prophets. The Lord has declared disaster for you. There's a story in uh, the book of Judges with Samson. Remember, just awful Samson, chapter 14. Uh, Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines, who they were commanded not to marry. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. But his father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives, or among all our people, that you must go and take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord. For he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time the Philistines ruled over Israel. They didn't realize that it was from the Lord. Does this make God guilty of that sin? Does this make Samson innocent of that sin? The answer to both of those questions is absolutely no. Absolutely no. And not in any contradictory way. I hate contradictions. I'm sensitive to those things. Um, This does not bother me in the least bit. There are answers to those questions that we have to struggle through. And we're coming to those. But this is the word of the Lord. This isn't a scribal slip-up. So it means something. With the other places as well, I'll just do one more on the slide. 2 Samuel 24. Uh, Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go number Israel and Judah. And you can read the rest of that just to know that that was a sinful thing for him to do. He wasn't supposed to. That came out out of sinful struggles in his heart. And yet the point is that he didn't make that decision because he doesn't make any decisions. He doesn't take any breaths. His heart doesn't beat any beats outside of the sovereign control of God. Such a thing is impossible. Now, again, we're we're not covering each of these uh, situations exhaustively, but we're simply asking, what does the Bible describe to us when it tells us about the extent of God's 
control. Uh, one more uh, section, one more realm, and that is faith and salvation, which is the other side of the coin, of course, here for a lot of this. We rejoice, Jonah 2.9, he, he, he rejoices as well, that salvation comes from the Lord. And we, the, the, in each of these, I hope you realize with the 37 pages of the chapter, with each of these sections, I mean, we're taking a small sampling of the passages that do this. We just don't have time for any more. Um, but there's a few that I want to focus on in, in this and just read out to us. Ephesians 2, a well-known passage. Hear it. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And of course, right before this, he says that he he began these works in us when we were dead. He made us alive. Now, before we go to the next one, I, there's... Oh, do I have it? Yes, I do. Good. Um, he, he, he gives an important qualification here for us in this. Uh, and a reminder that just like in the other realms that we've been seeing that involve mankind, even here with faith and salvation, there exists real human choice. We make a choice in coming to Christ. He says, certainly there is also a human choice, a choice to receive Christ, to believe in him. Without this choice, there is no salvation. There are also human decisions to follow Jesus, to obey his commandments, decisions that scripture continually urges us to make. But which choice comes first? Does God choose us for salvation and then move us to respond? Or do we first choose him and thereby motivate him to choose us for salvation? The second alternative is quite impossible since it violates the very idea of grace. If our choosing of God moves him to save us, then salvation is based on a work of ours and we have something to boast about. I simply put that up there to, to remind us that we're still talking about reality, a reality that includes human agency, human choices, human doings, human thinkings. This is all real. This is not a play or an illusion. This is all real. But none of it is, is able to exist and function outside of the control of God. This is the picture that is being painted for us. Um, Acts 16, 14. Speaking of Lydia with the early disciples, the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. That either means nothing or it ascribes her response to God's activity. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. Uh, Paul and Barnabas in Acts 13 preached to the Gentiles, and it says of the fruit of that preaching, it says, as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. And what happened when they believed? They made a real choice to trust Christ and to turn from a number of things, to hate father and mother. But they didn't do it if it was not appointed of them by God. Uh, you have Ezekiel in uh, chapter 36 describing the new covenant. This is too long as well, so I didn't put it up there. 
But the language that he uses to describe what God is doing for us in the new covenant that Christ has instituted is profound. He says, and he tries to make it very clear at the beginning, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God. In fact, would you turn here? We're, we're, uh, we're just about done, so I think we can do this. Turn to Ezekiel 36 real quickly, verse 22. Maybe I should have put it up on the screen, I'm sorry. It is, it is important to see this. Ezekiel 36, verse 22. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate my, the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and, when you have profa- uh, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. So here's how he does that. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you. And cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. And he's speaking about human salvation. So what we're doing is trying to handle the sheer weight of the scriptural witness that makes this attestation. That God efficaciously controls all things universally. Um, There's four final passages I'm going to put on the screen just to wrap us up here. Uh, And these are important and valuable because none of the other ones we've read say anything about all of it. Each one says something about something specific. Um, Here are four that don't do that. Lamentations 3, 37 and 38. Who can speak and have it happen if the Lord has not decreed it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both calamities and good things come? Romans 8.28, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Ephesians 1.11, in Christ we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. And Romans 11.33-36, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And I'll, I'll uh, close here with one final statement that frame makes. I opened with this a little bit. I told you that he says at the end, I do not apologize for including a large number of scripture passages in this chapter. What he says after that is he says, nothing is more important, especially at this point in the history of theology, than for God's people to be firmly convinced that scripture teaches God's universal control over the world and teaches it over and over again. So we're going to close with that.
Let me have questions. I, I do want to say some things about some of the questions and, and preview chapter 8 a little bit next week so we don't have to wait for like eight weeks or something to, to get at the next piece of this. So we will deal with some of that next uh, week as well. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we, we tremble before your word. One thing is beyond question in all of this that's confronting us, and that is that you are so much bigger and greater and more powerful than we imagine. God, we thank you for being merciful to us. We thank you that you have chosen for your people to use that control to cause all things to work together for our good, for the good of those who love you according to your calling. We thank you for your mercy and your goodness and your kindness. We thank you that you are a God to whom we can pray and ask for protection and mercy and forgiveness and blessing because you are the one who holds all things in your hand and nothing is able to escape your grip. We thank you and worship you as the God that you've revealed yourself to be. And we pray these things this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.